0: Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this uh, fifth of my six Gresham lectures. And uh, my theme today is, Are We Lost in the Cosmos? And some of you will say, well, that's a very interesting title. It's also rather puzzling. I mean, what, what do you mean by that? And yet I think it's a very interesting question to ask because it opens up a whole range of questions. Some of them might be religious, but some of them will be scientific, some philosophical as well. And really I think the deep down question that we're exploring today is this, is is this where we really belong? In other words, it's not so much a spatial question, This this is our place of habitation, it's really this sense, is this where we're rooted, where we're grounded, where we feel we actually belong? And, of course, that word home is one of the richest words in any language because it designates somewhere special, a place where we feel that this is where we're meant to be. That in effect, this is where we come back to when we go away somewhere else. And we feel this deep sense of uh, kinship or connectedness with our home. And if you like, it's where we feel that our heart belongs and we very often feel alienated or discontented when we end up somewhere else. And so if you want to use philosophical language, as a kind of existential ambivalence um, about being in a place where we aren't sure that we really belong. Now, a lot of writers have argued that it's part of being human to feel moored or anchored to some specific place, rich in associations and memories. And that's why, of course, we have that proverb, you know, home is where the heart is. And yet, it actually is quite difficult to conceptualize what it is that's distinct about a home and what distinguishes it from a habitat. Home, habitat, they're not. The same thing, and maybe that's because this word home is not really a sort of academic world, but is rather a category of the human heart. It's about the way we feel about somewhere, experiencing, if you like, its existential magnetism, taking place, taking pleasure in its associated sense of peace and security, and feeling ill at ease when we are away. And very often this this word home brings together lots of different ideas like, for example, memory of our historical past or a gathering place for memories that define who we are. Because very often those are partly linked with where we come from, i.e. where is our home. Now, obviously, for many people, this idea of a home is actually rather problematic. What, for example, about the perpetual nomads of our global culture, the international players who move from one continent to another, never really setting down roots anywhere? And is a particular concern, as many of you will know, for the children of individuals who leave their homeland and go and work abroad, like military personnel or missionaries or, of course, aid workers? And a common complaint on the part of these children is that there's really nowhere that they call home. They keep going to different places. They don't stay there long enough to set roots. And so actually home is very often a distant memory of somewhere they've left behind rather than somewhere where actually they are at the moment. These people feel they belong in many cultural contexts, yet deep down they feel that they actually belong nowhere. Or again, think about immigrants. Very often they leave behind their homelands and their family roots as they seek a better life or to find freedom from oppression. And very often they bring only their memories of their homelands to their new situations. And for me, one of the most interesting things is the way in which immigrants show a remarkable capacity to recreate their lost homeland in a different place while still adapting to a new language and society. And what you find is that memories of the homeland actually begin to play into their lives, in this country, for example, which actually eases that sense of having moved somewhere else. They're able to recreate home, at least to some extent, in this country. So let's stand back and think a bit more about this idea of home. All what I want to try and do is explore with you a distinction that you may find helpful. I'm going to just mention two words. And as I mention them, I want you to think of the associations that each of them would have. And I'm going to ask, how would you distinguish between a space and a place? Okay, a space. And a place. And some of you say, well, look, these are just synonyms, they're just the same words. I mean, what is different about them? Well, maybe we can bring something out that's significant. And this is Walter Brueggemann, who was a very famous Old Testament scholar. And what he was doing in a book called The Land is to reflect on why in ancient Israel people became so attached to certain places. What was it, he asked, that was so special about them? And this is his answer to the question I raised. And in answering it, I think he opens up some very interesting ways of thinking. He writes, Place is space, which has historical meanings, where some things have happened which are now remembered and which provide continuity and identity across generations. Place is space, in which important words have been spoken, which have established identity, defined vocation, and envisioned destiny. So he's saying, look, there's this general category, space. Then there's this specific idea of place, which is somewhere where something important has happened. And you remember that. Now, maybe nobody else does, because that didn't happen for them. But I'm sure there are many in this audience who could say, there's a very particular place for me, because it's here that uh, I got married, it's here that my mother was buried, it's here that, you know, I made this big decision. And very often what you find is that places become important because something that's important to you happened there or to your people happened there. And that's what Brueggemann is really trying to bring out in this quotation. He's making the point that we begin to invest certain places with significance because of memories. This happened here, this is important, and therefore this is a very special place for us. And so what Brueggemann is saying is to make sense of, for example, the history of Israel, you need to move away from this abstract idea of space and think more about this idea of place, somewhere that is important because of memories and associations. So we merely exist in space and time, but we act and we live in place and in history. Now, of course, we need to make the point that not every space is a place. For example, the French anthropologist Marc Rouget argues there are lots of spaces which, frankly, are just alienating. He talks, for example, about shopping malls, airports, or hotels, where basically you're just there doing something and you want to get out of there as quickly as possible. But for a lot of people, there are these areas that really matter. Places and, of course, home is a particular place. Place is what a space is for us. It's shaped by memories and very often those memories are known often only to ourselves. So you may be out walking with a friend and you walk through somewhere and you know that's special to you because something happened there but the person you're walking with doesn't and they don't know that this place is special at all. It's very often you, each of us, deciding Which place is special? So let me then begin to use that as a way of opening things up. Home, a particular kind of place. What is it that makes us ask questions about, for example, whether this universe really is our home? I thought it might be helpful just to use a passage from Pascal to open this question up. And many of you will have read his pensées, as you'll know. They're a collection of rather short, sometimes rather enigmatic reflections, often about human nature and very often about our place in this bigger picture, our place in the universe. And what I like about Pascal is that very often he kind of puts into words feelings or anxieties which sometimes is difficult for someone like me to put into words. And this is Pascal reflecting both on the brevity of life, but also the fact that we find ourselves here, not having asked to be here, but we simply ended up here. And this is the quote which many of you will know very well. It's a rather melancholy quote, but nonetheless it opens up some really interesting questions. When I consider the short duration of my life, Swallowed up in eternity before and after, the little space which I fill and even can see, engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces of which I'm ignorant and which know me not. I'm frightened. I'm astonished at being here rather than there. Why now rather than then? Who has put me here by whose order and direction have this time and place been allotted to me. I think it's quite a nice passage because he's opening up these questions and he's expressing his own anxiety, even fear, at thinking about some of them. Because this rather haunting passage identifies what I think is one of the deepest fears of human beings that actually were just insignificant elements in a vast and meaningless universe which actually doesn't really have the slightest interest in us. And Pascal is saying that we seem to have been inserted into the cosmos at a place and time which were not of our choosing, and we'll eventually depart from it at a place and time which are also unknown to us. So Pascal's question is, you know, why did we enter this cosmic process then and there? Or is it utterly meaningless to actually ask that question why, when all that we can hope for is an answer to the rather different question, which is how? And, of course, lingering behind everything that Pascal says in that very interesting passage is a deeper question, not so much why or, you know, how, but actually so what? In other words, is it even a meaningful question to ask And certainly there are some who would say, look, this isn't a really helpful question, but I'm going to explore it because it opens up lots of interesting ideas. And as always, what I'm going to do is put before you lots of ideas, lots of ways of thinking, and just asking you what you make of them. So let's ask that question again. Are we meant to be here, or is it just a cosmic accident we simply have to accept? And certainly there'll be many who would say, look, we've just ended up here by accident. Let's get used to it and stop worrying about it. There are lots of other things that we could be doing with our time. And there'll be many who would say, that's that's just the best we can do. Let's stop there and do something more productive. But others would say, no, no, this is about discovering who we are. And if we're going to live meaningfully in this universe, we need to be able to answer some of those questions about our identity and what we are meant to be doing. And I think that's a very <coughs> important question. And there'll be many who would say, well, look, we just exist in this universe. This is a line I gave in an earlier lecture. I'm coming back to it because a of you wrote to me and said you liked it. This is from Omar Khayyam. Uh, his rubyat, some of you will know this. A Rubiat is basically a collection of four, four-line poems. And he's, he's talking here about, you know, this sense of powerlessness, um, that he's in the world and can't do anything about it. And he's looking up at the sky, and these are the thoughts that go through his mind. And that inverted bowl they call the sky, where under, crawling, cooped, we live and die. Lift not your hands to it for help, for it rolls impotently on as you or I. And there's this feeling that we don't really belong here. Now, many of you have heard of the movement we sometimes call Gnosticism. It's involving a kind of revival these days, although the revival of Gnosticism we know today doesn't bear much relationship to the classic form, but certainly it's a movement that became very significant in late classical antiquity. In other words, in the later part of the Western Roman Empire. And one of the core beliefs that lies behind Gnosticism is this belief that we don't belong in this world. We're trapped here. We struggle to find our way out of it and back to the realm where we really belong. And so many Gnostic writers talk about human beings being gold in the mud. Nice phrase, gold in the mud. In other words, we're stuck somewhere. It's somewhere that's not very nice, but we are precious. And the question is how do we get out of this mud into where we are really mean to be? And very often, this is linked with a dislike of the material world. We are spiritual creatures, and we are in effect contaminated or limited by the physical world. Our destiny is to escape from this prison and to make our way to our true homeland. Now, Gnosticism was a complicated movement, many of you will know, the, the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And it doesn't mean knowledge in the sense of a body of information about our world. It's much more secret insights, a kind of insider knowledge about who we really are and how we find our way back to the place where we really belong. And what's interesting is this, that most forms of Gnosticism recognize some kind of supreme God who is infinitely remote from human affairs. And the point very often being made is that there is this real God and then there's this creator God who's a lesser God, a demiurge, who in effect made an inadequate and evil world. And that's where we find ourselves And so a Gnostic would argue that redemption is about being removed from this physical world and brought to a place which is where we really belong. Now, that's very interesting. If I had time, I'd say more about that. What I want to highlight, though, is one specific idea. And that is this sense of alienation or disconnectedness from the world, which reflects a deeper intuition that this isn't really where we belong. We find ourselves trapped in this world, as to use that image again, gold in the mud, knowing that we really belong somewhere else. And those of you who kind of enjoy reading Martin Heidegger, the existential philosopher, will know that he talks about something very similar when he uses that German term geworfenheit, being thrown. In other words, he's saying we are thrown into this world. It's not a place we've chosen. It's not a place over which we have any control. And so we struggle to make sense of it. We struggle to live authentically in this world because we're enmeshed within constraints which aren't of our own choosing. And that idea has resonated with quite a lot of people, especially in the 60s and early 70s. And uh, when I was researching this essay, I came across um, an American rock band who for some reason I'd overlooked in the past called The Doors. The Doors, uh, I'm not seeing much recognition. No, I didn't recognize them either. But anyway, they had a song called, listen to this, Into This World We Are Thrown. No, you, you don't know either, okay. Um, but you know, the basic idea is, look, we're here, and how do we get here? We didn't want to be here. It's that sense that this is where we've landed, where we've been thrown, not the place that we have chosen. And so it prompts this question, can we find something better? Or is there another place that we are really meant to be? So let's, let's focus a bit more on this sense of alienation or disconnection. I mean, why do so many of us feel like this? Because, after all, when you think about it, every single one of us here today is made up of what we might call stardust, the basic stuff of the universe, because elements like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, all fundamental life had their origins in the cores of stars. And so, in one sense, we are very much part of the universe. Actually, the, the, what we are made of is the basic stuff Of the universe. And yet most of us would probably feel something like this. That might be what we're made of but it's not who we are. There's a distinction between our physical makeup and deeper questions of value and meaning. And very often we seem to have this sense that there is something more to existence than simply getting by from one day to another. Not just survival, but something that's more than that. As many of you will know, the Greek language has two words for life bios, which is kind of way existing, and zoe, which is living a, a meaningful life. I think that's important. It's not just bios, it's zoe. It's actually not just surviving, it is being able to do something that's worthwhile and meaningful as we survive. So how might we begin to start thinking about this? Well, I'm going to begin with what Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, the Austrian philosopher, called existential wonder. What do you mean by that? Why is it interesting? What he's saying is that something happens which means we become much more alert to the wonder of simply existing in this world, and in effect, beginning to come to terms with this, beginning to allow this to open up our thoughts and our hearts to something that is bigger. And one of the best writers on this theme is a man who, some of you may have heard of, Michael Mayne, who was Dean of Westminster Abbey from 1986 until 1996. And in his retirement, he wrote a remarkable book called The Sunrise of Wonder. And it's a beautifully written book. It takes the form of 24 letters he wrote to his grandchildren while he was spending a month high in the Swiss Alps and just talking about everything he found wonderful and meaningful in uh, literature, music, religion, and art. I'm going to show you a, a passage from this because it's very interesting. In this, he opens up basically this theme of experiencing the sense of wonder and just taking time to reflect on what this is all about. My subject, he writes, is wonder. Again, the book is called The Sunrise of Wonder. Still in print, worth reading. And my starting point is so obvious, it often escapes us. It is me sitting at a table looking out on the world. It's the fact I exist, that there is anything at all. It's the givenness that astonishes the fact that the mountains, the larch tree, the gentian, the jay exist, and that someone called me is here to observe them. And actually, I've had an experience like that. I'm sure many of you would too. and it, it really is a very significant moment, because I think most of us have experienced some such sense of the, what well, I suppose you could call, it the strangeness of things, the sheer oddness of the fact that each of us is here and is able to see a reality beyond ourselves. Now, Michael Mayne's book, The Sunrise of Wonder, borrows its title from a phrase used by G.K. Cheston, and Cheston certainly talked about this theme of wonder a lot. He writes, "Moving the I think very perceptively, of a suppressed or submerged or forgotten blaze or burst of astonishment at our own existence which lies at the back of our mind but every now and then it breaks through and it's able to inform and enrich our artistic and spiritual life so that's a good starting point that sense of wonder but of course it's only a starting point and has to lead us on to further things so again it's that question i framed right at the beginning which is whether this is our home or whether there is a different place that really is our home, which is what we should be looking for and what we seek to enter and inhabit. Now, Chesterton himself writes about this lot. That's one of the most interesting themes in his writings. And I'm going to read to you a quote from Chesterton. I read really quite slowly, but I want you to see the image he uses and see what you make of it. He writes. We have come to the wrong star. That's what makes life at once so splendid and so strange. The true happiness is that we don't fit. We come from somewhere else. Now, again, it's a throwaway line. But, you know, we come from the wrong star. We come from somewhere else. It's a very interesting idea. Cheston does a lot with it in his writings. But it's also a theme we find in the New Testament, which very often portrays this world as a place of transit rather than permanent habitation, often using the imagery of citizenship to make this point. And a very common theme in the New Testament is this. We have no permanent citizenship in this world in that our citizenship is in heaven. And many of you know this, this verse from there to the Hebrews. Here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city which is to come. Now, I arrived early for this lecture to make sure I arrived in good time, and I spent a while wandering around the Museum of London looking at its Roman exhibits. And actually, that was really interesting because these were, in effect, Romans living in London who, in effect, were trying to replicate some of their culture in London and then would be going back to Rome when the right time came. In other words, they saw London as a place where they were really in transit, and then they would go back home to Rome at the end of their period of service. And certainly, that's a theme I want to focus on a little bit in this lecture. The fact that um, from the first century onwards, really, Roman imperial culture had a sort of almost like a a cultural expectation that Roman citizens would serve the imperial administration abroad uh, in the colonies and then would have the right to go back to the metropolis to Rome. Um, once their duty was done. Rome was their patria, their native land, their mother city, the place where they really belonged, but they were in this outpost, which is where they lived and served in the meantime. Not home, but their place of service. And we find that imagery picked up at several points in New Testament. We'll come back to that in a moment. But we also find it in early Christian writers, The idea that our true patria, our true native land, is not where we are at the moment, but somewhere else. Cyprian of Carthage, who I'll talk to you more about in a moment, says, in fact, we must learn to come to terms with the fact that heaven, paradise, is our true native land. So there's a lot of interesting ideas here. And talking about this idea, for example, of a Roman Belonging in Rome, but serving here in London, emphasizes a really important theme, which is that of separation. That's where I belong. This is where I am. They're not the same. I'm separated from where I really belong, but I can live here knowing that this separation will one day be overcome and I will go home. And certainly, again, if we just stick with um, the Roman period, that's a very common theme in Roman discussion of death. In effect, it was about being separated from those who loved, but that one day you'll be restored to them. And you find that, for example, in the the mythology about the river Styx, putting an oblong in in the hand of Charon, he would take across the Styx. Uh, and then you'll be reunited with those who already crossed the river before you. Or you might think of Cicero's very important dialogue, Scipio's Dream, which is very much about this idea of a family reunion in the world to come, where you see again those who have gone before you. And certainly that's a theme that this writer I mentioned a moment ago called Cyprian of Carthage picks up. And using that Roman analogy, he asks Christians to think about this as being a way of understanding what death is all about, but also what human existence in this world is all about. It's about being in a place of service, but being able finally to return home. And he, he uses this imagery, which many of you will know. We should consider, he writes, that we have renounced the world and in the meantime are living here as guests and strangers. Two very interesting words. Other early writers would use images like, for example, a wayfarer or a sojourner, someone who passes through but doesn't belong because they're passing through on their way to somewhere else. Then Cyprian writes, anyone who's been in foreign lands longs to return to his own native land. And we regard paradise as our native land. So there is Cyprian um, working this idea um, based on the Roman colony, which basically is you belong in Rome. That is where your citizenship is. That guarantees you a right of return. But in the meantime, you are here in this colony where there are things that you need to do. That's one image. But there's another image which many of you will expect me to talk about, and so I'll talk about right now, and that is the image of exile. Exile. I already touched on this a little bit in this lecture. We need, I think, to say a lot more about that. And we're really looking at a landmark in the history of ancient Israel, which basically is very often described simply as the exile or very often the Babylonian exile. So basically we're going back to the 6th century before Christ uh, when Israel found itself caught up in a tension between the two great superpowers of the ancient world of that day, Egypt to the south and Babylon to the east. And there was no way Israel could exist on her own. In effect, she had to choose who she was going to ally herself to. And initially, they allied themselves with Babylon, and then um, the Egyptians defeated Babylon in 601, and Israel fought. We need to realign. The wind has changed direction. Let's ally ourselves, not with Babylon, as we did in the past, but with Egypt. And the result was that uh, Jude, the land of Judah, the capital of Jerusalem, rebelled against Babylon. And the Babylonians were not impressed and took military action against um, Jerusalem. And in 597 BC, there was a substantial attack which led to um, some inhabitants being deported. And then again, following further rebellion, in effect, um, the population of Jerusalem, at least a substantial part of the population of um, Jerusalem, were deported to Babylon over the period 597 to 581. So what you've got to do is try and think of a substantial part of the people of Jerusalem being deported to Babylon. And they would remain there until the fall of Babylon to the Persian king Cyrus the Great in 539. So this is what that looked like. You can see that in effect involved a journey followed by inhabitation of a place which is a long way from Jerusalem. And so in many ways what I'm saying is I want you to try and imagine how people who had lived in Jerusalem all their lives would feel when they were deported to a strange land, a strange city, with no hope of ever going home. That's really what... um, The exile is about about this subjective feeling on the part of those who are deported that Babylon is not where we belong. We belong in Jerusalem, and we may never see it again. That sense of um, being far away from things. And you find that in, in Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. It's very much this idea of being displaced. So we know a lot more about this period now, actually, because um, recently, back in 2015, they discovered 100 clay tablets from Mesopotamia that actually give details of the the life of these exiles living in the heartland of the Babylonian Empire. It took place in Jerusalem. The exhibition was called by the Rivers of Babylon, and it showcased this collection of tablets. Uh, There's one of them. And these tablets give minute detail of who these people were, what they did, the amount of fruit they bought, the taxes they paid, the inheritance they gave to the relatives and so on. And there are some things that came out from this exhibition I think we probably hadn't quite grasped before. They they weren't slaves. They were simply people who had been deported and settled in a new land and began to build up its economy. And basically, they, they were free to live their own lives, but they had to do it in Babylon. So the framework I want you to think about is this. Being in Babylon, but knowing that wasn't where you came from, that wasn't your home. And keeping alive the memory of Jerusalem while you were in Babylon. Now, Babylon eventually fell to Cyrus the Persian in 539, which actually is a long period of exile. Um, And Cyrus issued a general decree permitting foreigners who'd been deported to Babylon to return home. And most Jews seemed to have gone home, but interestingly, a lot did not. There was an ongoing Jewish presence in Babylon right up until very recent times. So what I want you to do is think about the exile as a framework for making sense of the question I posed right at the beginning of this lecture, which is, do we really belong here? And the exile gives us a framework. And the framework, again, is being here, but having the sense that this isn't our true homeland, that we belong somewhere else, and maybe there's a possibility of returning home or entering into this other place, which is where we feel we really belong. And you won't be surprised to know that Christian writers saw this framework as enormously useful. And so during the Middle Ages in particular, this imagery was used extensively as a kind of way of making sense of the life of faith. And the best-known example is from this hymn by a writer called Peter Abelard. Uh, this is from the Latin text, but here is the English translation. Look at the imagery that Peter Abelard is using in the Middle Ages. Now, in the meantime, with hearts raised on high, we, for that country, that's our homeland, must yearn and must sigh, seeking Jerusalem, dear native land, through our long exile on Babylon's strand. Obviously, that's an English translation. doesn't quite do justice to Latin, but you can see the imagery. You can get a sense of the framework that he's using, that, in effect, you don't see this world as your home. It's the place you're passing through. You really belong somewhere else. And, of course, that raises the question as to whether what Abelal is saying here actually encourages you to be otherworldly, to be disengaged with this world. I think the evidence is that it didn't really happen at all. It doesn't really encourage any disengagement or disconnection from the world. It's really saying, look, the things you need to do while you're here, but actually you belong somewhere else. So that's a very interesting framework, which I think is well worth thinking about and can be developed in some very helpful directions. let me now move on and look at this theme of exile from a different perspective. I'm going to talk to you a bit about Edward Said, uh, a Palestinian who grew up in Egypt and then moved to the United States, who taught for most of his literary career at Columbia University in New York. And the key point to understand is that Said was Palestinian, okay? Yes, he moved to Egypt, but his heartland was Palestine. And then he moved to New York, miles away from Palestine, different cultural world, and yet felt the sense of really belonging in Palestine. That was where his heart was. He spends a lot of time in some of his writings talking about this sense of displacement, the sense of not belonging here, the sense of wondering how my homeland actually plays into my life in the United States. And in a collection of essays focusing on this theme of exile, he basically suggests that exile requires detachment. We have to detach ourselves from all sense of belonging and love of place. It means keeping a critical distance from all cultural identities. And for Saeed, that's a good thing, because it means that you become receptive and open to other ways of thinking. In other words, Saeed is saying, look, he, he could have, in effect... Yearned to go back to Palestine and, in effect, uh, lived a Palestinian life in New York, but he didn't. He, in effect, saw his status as an exile, as, in effect, requiring him to open himself up to other ways of thinking and saw that as personally enriching. And he makes the point, I think it's actually quite a fair point, that some of the most creative writers and thinkers are exiles. In other words, people who have had to leave behind their homeland, settle somewhere else, and in that other place are able to use their homeland to enrich their writing or their, their painting, whatever it is. And the writer that came to my mind when I read Said was actually Joseph Conrad. As many of you know, he was ethnically Polish, but was a citizen of the Russian Empire, and had to leave Russia, uh, given the political situation of the late 19th century, settled in England, and actually began to develop his own distinct identity and style of writing. So let's go back then to this theme of exile as our religious theme. And obviously I've looked a little bit about Peter Abelard, but of course there are many others who take this idea and try to do something with it. And what they're trying to do with it is in effect construct a map, a map which helps them make sense of their place in this world. So if you like, it's trying to develop a frame of reference, a way of thinking, a ways of seeing things that makes sense of who they are, where they are, and gives them a sense of their location in time and space, this important idea of place, and also their attitude to the world as they pass through it. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a very good example of a writer who develops this idea at some length. Uh, Lewis is quite clear that this is God's world, it's to be valued and appreciated and enjoyed, but it's not where we really belong, and this world, if you like, is studded or embedded with clues that there is somewhere else which is where we truly belong. And Lewis argues that basically what what you have to do is find a way of making sense of this, which gives you stability in this life, helps you figure out what it is all about. So for Lewis, um, the image of exile really is quite helpful. Um, And he tends to think of this in terms that I think are really useful. Now, obviously, in talking about things like, for example, exile, I've begun to open up the idea of a journey. And that, I think, is another image which many people find helpful. Because, again, it opens up this idea of passing through, traveling. In effect, you need a map to make sense of where you are and where you're going. It's all about, in effect, not being static, but about journeying. And, again, think of the Old Testament, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, is very much the idea of you are journeying through various kinds of landscape. And wherever you go, you don't journey on your own. But certainly this idea of a journey is very significant um, for um, many writers in the Old and New Testaments, and it's been picked up a lot in Christian spiritual writings. For example, we've already looked at the exile. We could talk also, for example, about the Exodus, which is when the people of Israel left Egypt, and finally enter into Canaan. And this whole idea of that journey, not simply being getting from Egypt to Canaan, but actually of discovering their identity as Israel as they journey It's about the solidification of a sense of cohesion and identity in that group. So the idea of the journey then is something that is very important. So we might then begin to ask, how can we think about this? in relation to that question of where we really belong. And certainly, if we look at the New Testament, the letters of Paul, we do find the image of the journey being used a lot. But Paul modifies this in a number of ways. For example, at one point he s- says, look, let's, let's move from journey to race. In other words, it's all about something that's quite arduous, for which training is required. It requires some sort of preparation. And one of the points that Paul is making is that you need to prepare for this journey which you are going through. But interestingly, one of Paul's most significant images for understanding our place in life and so on picks up on that theme I mentioned earlier, which is the idea of the city of Rome being a Roman citizen's homeland, the patria, the place where you really belonged, and then the Roman colony as the place where you are serving. And Paul developed this idea explicitly in one of his letters written to the church at Philippi. And Philippi, at the time Paul was writing, was a city-state in Macedonia, which actually was a Roman colony. So the point I'm going to make here is that this is Paul using this framework to try and make sense of life. Now, this, the colony of Philippi was originally a Greek colony named after uh, Philip, the father of Alexander the Great, um, but it was taken over the Roman, by the Romans in 148. And there is part of the uh, remains of Philippi, it's still a very impressive sight for those of you who want to go and see it. Although Philippi was situated in the Greek speaking Roman province of Macedonia, its official language, was Latin. And the key point here is that there were many Romans living in Philippi as administrators. They were Roman citizens, and to be a citizen of Rome entitled you to go back to Rome and live there when you'd finished serving in the colony. And Paul uses this image to try and make sense of life. Uh, Paul clearly assumes that his readers in Philippi would already be familiar with this political uh, model, and he tries to tease out some of the implications of that. And his central theme is that just as Philippi saw itself as an outpost of Rome in a distant province of Macedonia, so Christians should see themselves as a colony of heaven on earth. And the idea of, citizens being, of Christians being citizens of heaven, which is very um, typical of Paul, and um, basically was saying you belong in heaven, but you are here on earth. One day you're going home, but in the meantime, you've got things to do here. And knowing you can go home gives you a motivation for doing things well while you're here on earth. So Paul is arguing, in effect, that this whole framework of um, Roman citizenry is giving you, if you like, a mental map, a way of thinking about things, which is helpful as you think about this. So for Paul, in effect, Christians were on earth, but citizens of heaven, and that meant that one day they would be going home. And for Paul, that had all kinds of implications. I can just tease out a few of them. One of them was this that although Rome was miles away, they would speak Latin in Philippi. And Paul, in effect, argues that Christians should try and speak, so to speak, the language of heaven while on earth, and saw Christian worship as a means of sustaining that identity during this period on earth. So basically, that's a framework that many people find helpful. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned Peter Abelard, and I touched on the Middle Ages. And the Middle Ages, very often are rude about them, but I have to say, I think it's one of the most creative and interesting periods in Western culture for many reasons. One of the themes that you find developed in the spiritual writings of that period is the idea of um, a person being, the Latin word is a viator, a viator, a pilgrim, someone who is on a journey. And again, it encapsulates this idea of traveling through this world, having things you need to do, but asking you not to get too involved with it, because really you are passing through it on your way to somewhere else. And this idea, for example, of traveling through the world on the way to heaven was a very major theme in a lot of the devotional period of the Middle Ages. And many writings of this period, for example, Dante's um, Divine Comedy, really fits this kind of general pattern. It's about describing this journey, the landmarks you pass on the way, and also encouraging you to keep going, despite setbacks, despite discouragement, in effect saying this is something that's well worth doing, and very often saying keep thinking about the goal because that keeps you on your journey. If you're journeying from A to B because you want to be at B, then thinking about B is actually a motivation to keep going with that journey. So those kind of thoughts were widely regarded as offering encouragement to believers as they dealt with this disappointment and hardship that they faced along the way. And so going back to Dante's Divine Comedy, the central image is that of a journey from the darkness of a wood to an encounter with God, and what's sometimes called the beatific vision, in a course of which the poet achieves insight into both his own identity and the nature and means of achieving salvation. Now, many of you have read Dante, it takes a long time, but of course, in English, we have a work which in many ways, we see by many as epitomising this approach, And, of course, it's John Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress, which I'm sure many of you will have read or had read to you, actually, when you were much younger. And this is um, basically an allegory. It's a story of the journey of the pilgrim from the citizen of destruction to the eternal city. It's very much about, um, in effect, representing the Christian life as a journey in the course of which you encounter encouragement, but also hardship and discouragement. And in effect, what um, uh, John Bunyan is doing is to give almost like a visualization of the life of faith. This is what it looks like. This is how it maps out in reality. And in effect, what Bunyan is doing is to almost give you a visual map of the kind of territories you're passing through and the sort of issues you will engage along with the way. And it was, as you know, a very, very popular work. And once more, the theme there is the difficulties, the temptations, the encouragements that are to be had on the way to the New Jerusalem, which are intended to encourage and admonish its readers. And again, those of you who've read that work will remember how very often it picks up on imagery from the Exodus from Egypt, through the wilderness wanderings, into Canaan, obviously climaxing at the crossing of the River Jordan, which for Bunyan, of course, is a symbol of death. So again, it's a very interesting way of mapping this whole journey of faith. So I began this lecture by asking, well, where do we really belong? And that, I think, is a very important point to pick up on because it really invites us to think more about how we would answer that question. And one of the answers we can give is the map, which in effect is saying, here is a way of making sense of this world, this is your home, this is the territory you're passing through. And each of us, I think, probably develops our own distinct mental maps but it's a very helpful way of making sense of who we are, what we think life is all about, and also begins to give us a way of thinking about what is really important, what's really valuable, what, in effect, is is something we're meant to be doing rather than just something that needs to be done as we journey on our way. I talked about C.S. Lewis earlier, and I will mention him again, if I may, as I begin to wrap this lecture up. Because Lewis is a very visual thinker, And again, um, if we look at the Chronicles of Narnia or even some of his more prosaic writings, you'll find he very often uses visual analogies to try and help you make sense of things. And what Lewis does, in effect, is to say that, yes, this is indeed God's world. which is where we are meant to be for the moment, but it's not where we really belong. And Lewis's argument echoes some of those themes from the Middle Ages that I picked up on earlier. That, in effect, we are traveling through this world on our way to somewhere else. That thinking about where we're going to end up enables us to make that journey more hopefully and do things here on the way. I want to emphasize that Lewis isn't really a world-denying writer. He's much more one who says this is where we are meant to be for the moment. There are things to be done, but we need to keep alive what Lewis calls the hope of our true country. So Lewis basically says that to aim at heaven, that's a word he uses quite a lot, to aim at heaven, is not to neglect this world but rather to raise our horizon and elevate our expectations and then to behave on earth in the light of this greater reality. And Lewis in um, a chapter in Mere Christianity where he talks about the hope of heaven makes this comment which uh, I put before you for your consideration. He says the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. i read that again. The Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. And, you know, on one hand, you can say, well, look, surely thinking about heaven distracts us from earth. I think that's a very fair objection. But actually, St. Louis is making a point. Here's one line of thought. For many Christians, the existence of suffering and pain is a real issue. The Christian vision of the New Jerusalem is a place where there is no longer any pain or suffering. And that motivates you not to say, well, let's get out of this world, but rather, can we make this world more like heaven by trying to relieve suffering and pain, giving you a motivation you like for relief work or, indeed, for going into medicine as a career. But let me quote you some lines from The Last Battle, which is the final novel in The, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And this is um, a line spoken by Jewel the Unicorn. I, I don't like the names Lewis gives his characters, but this is what Jewel the Unicorn says. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now and basically for Lewis that really is the key question developing this map which helps you make sense of yourself the world we're passing through what needs to be done where we're going to end up and all of that is woven together in that answer we all give to the question are we lost in the cosmos or actually can we figure out what we're meant to be doing while we're here and what it's all about. Now, obviously, there's much more I could say, but I have to respect the time limits, and I want to give time for question. Let me just say that my next lecture on the 8th of May is going to be my final lecture as Gresham Professor of Divinity. I want to say how much I've enjoyed giving you these lectures, um, and um, I, I, perhaps um, someone will say something about the person who will succeed me from um, September, but I do want to say how much I've enjoyed speaking to you What we'll be looking at in that final lecture, well, I'm going to try and stand back a bit, and I'm going to look at this question. Are facts enough to keep us going? You all know about Mr. Gradgrind in Dickens' Hard Times. You know, for him, facts were everything. And that was all you needed to know. I don't think you do. And in this final lecture, I'm going to try and wrap things up, stand back a bit and look at facts and meanings and all these things, and hopefully it will be a nice lecture to end this series. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your company today. We have a few minutes left. I think we can get two questions in. Let's see who would like to ask us. Thank you very much indeed.